Here of late, there has been a lot of media and national attention focused on court trials. There's been a lot of attention given to court cases, and regardless of what opinions we might have about the different proceedings in different trials, reflecting upon a trial in a courtroom is a reminder to us of what a serious and solemn thing it is to stand before a court of law, to stand before a judge and a jury who have legal authority to pronounce a verdict of guilty or not guilty, and therefore to determine what one's future life is going to look like, at least to some degree. We often take it for granted that we're going to determine determine what our future life is going to look like. We take it for granted that we're going to make decisions about where we go and what to do and what not to do and so on. And all of that can change in a moment when you stand before a court of law. Your future is in the hands of the court at that point. And this is a very solemn thing. Most of us here, I would assume, have never stood before a judge and a jury in that situation. And we might think, well, I don't I don't have to worry about that. I'm not on trial. I still get to determine what my future is going to look like. But as we continue this morning in the Gospel of John, we find our Lord Jesus telling his adversaries that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. This passage reminds us that one day we will all stand before the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord, and that all judgment and all authority has been given to him. What this means then is that the future of each and every one of us is in the hands of Jesus Christ. And this should cause us to think then about how we must respond to Christ here and now so that we'll be ready to stand before him at the time of judgment. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to our passage this morning, we'll be considering John chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill, For 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, 
Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now this passage that we've just read together is one that is quite remarkable with regard to the breadth of the truths that are contained in it. It speaks to us about sickness, sin, the Sabbath, the Son of God, His relationship to the Father, and the fact that all judgment has been committed to the Son and therefore the honor that is due to the Son. This passage is remarkable in the scope of its breadth and it's also remarkable in its depth. It contains the deep things of God, things of which we can only begin to scratch the surface because at some point as we try to grapple with the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, our understanding fails and we simply have to trust the Word of God even when we do not or cannot fully comprehend what is stated and affirmed. And so before we even dig into the text itself, we need to step back and just think about what John is is trying to accomplish here. John has a stated purpose in telling us the particular things that he's telling us here in chapter 5. John's not just giving us random information about Jesus. Neither the Gospel of John nor any of the other Gospels is an exhaustive biography of the life of Jesus. And so John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is being selective in these, these incidents that he is telling us about. And John tells us his purpose, the end of the book, or near the end of the book, John 20, 31, where he says that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is is John's motive in telling us what he tells us in the gospel. And so he tells us about this miracle that Jesus performs, and his purpose is so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. And as we, as we look at this text, we'll, uh, we'll consider it under two main headings. Number one, do not sin anymore. And number two, honor the Son. So number one, do not sin anymore. Number two, honor the Son. And so he, he tells us 
then about the healing of this man at the pool. And the chapter starts out simply enough. John tells us that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem at a, at a feast of the Jews. Uh, and this is, this is common in John's gospel. So many of the exchanges between Jesus and the Jews that we see in the gospel of John happen at one of the feasts, at Passover or one of the other Jewish feasts. A lot of times John will even tell us specifically which feast he's talking about. He doesn't do so here. But nevertheless, this is, this is common in John for Jesus to interact with the, uh, the Jewish leaders at one of the feasts. And so he goes up to Jerusalem and he meets this man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He's lying there by the pool of Bethesda, which was believed to have healing qualities such that when the water was stirred, the one who entered the water first after the stirring would be healed. And certainly this man's hope was to be able to get down into the water when it was stirred up so that he might be healed. But he was an invalid. And with no one to help him into the pool, he could not make it down into the pool in time to be healed, as he himself indicates there in verse 7. Jesus, seeing this man and knowing that he was in that condition for a long time, asks him if he wanted to be made well. And he certainly did, but had trouble getting into the water. So Jesus simply commands him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And so we read in verse 9 that he did so. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. And then in the aftermath of the miracle, Jesus slipped away, as is indicated down below in verse 13. Now, on any other day of the week, I suppose it's possible that the matter might have just ended there. Jesus healed somebody, slipped away into the crowd. However, it wasn't just any day of the week. It was Sabbath on that day. And according to the Jewish reckoning, that meant that this man carrying his pallet was breaking the Sabbath. And so they go after him. They say to him in verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Of course, the law stated, the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the Lord through Jeremiah had reiterated the Sabbath command, Jeremiah 17, 21 and 22, and had expounded it in this way. Take heed for yourselves that you do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your forefathers. One of the traditions of the Jewish elders had stated that whoever carries anything on the Sabbath day, whether in his right hand or in his left or in his bosom or on his shoulder, shall be guilty. The Old Testament strictness of the Sabbath law forbid that work to be done. But the teaching of our Lord is that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And what this means is that while work was not to be done, nevertheless, work could be done in cases of necessity and mercy. Jesus clearly expected that if the Pharisees had an animal that fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, he would go in and grab the animal and pull it out. Jesus expected that there would be some works that would be done, even if not one's occupation being done, which was prohibited, but nevertheless, works of necessity and mercy could be done. And this man's case would fall into one of those categories. What, what were his other options? He'd been healed and it was a Sabbath day. He could continue to sit there by the pool until the Sabbath was over. Or he could get up and take off walking and just leave his pallet behind. He could do one of those two things or he could do what Jesus said. Pick up your pallet and walk. And this man 
did what Jesus told him to do, and he was called out for it. And he, in turn, passes the blame. He says, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. He didn't know Jesus' name because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd, and he simply says, the one who made me well told me to do this, and the implication is, therefore, I did it. Don't blame me. And then later on, verse 14, Jesus finds this man in the temple, and he says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. We should notice here, in verse 14, how Jesus connects those issues of sin and suffering. This man had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus heals him, and Jesus says, Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, if you think about the healings of Jesus as they're recorded for us in the Gospels, this is not common. This is not common in what the Gospel writers were inspired to hand down to us. Rarely do we find Jesus instructing someone whom he has just healed in such a way as this. I'm hard-pressed to think of any other case where Jesus speaks in such a way to someone for whom he has just worked a miracle. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This man was commanded to turn away from sin because sin has consequences. Now, perhaps in this man's case, maybe there was a close connection between some sin that he had committed and what happened to him. We don't know. Perhaps Jesus, knowing this man's heart, knew that this particular man had need of such a warning as he moved forward in life. Now, at this point, we we do need to be very careful. Sometimes the cause and effect between sin and suffering in this life is hard to determine. Indeed, many times it is impossible to determine with complete precision. Now, we have divine revelation in Scripture in regard to some of those connections historically, but for the particular sins that, that you and I commit and the earthly sufferings that we or those we know happen to endure, the line of connection between the two is not always clear. Sometimes we suffer and there is no sin that is clearly behind the suffering. We can think of Job, for instance, the sufferings of Job. There was no one particular sin that was clearly behind the sufferings of Job. We can think likewise of the man born blind, John chapter 9. With respect to that man, the disciples tried to link up his blindness with some specific sin. And they said to Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? So that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so we need to be very careful when we're trying to see whether our suffering or the suffering of someone else corresponds with some sin that the party in question has committed. But having made that caveat, we also need to acknowledge that sin has consequences. And sometimes those consequences result in physical suffering Here in this present world. We could think, for example, of the sinful abuse of the Lord's Supper that was going on in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul tells us explicitly that those who ate and drank without judging the body rightly ate and drank judgment on themselves. And then he says, 1 Corinthians 11.30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. They were saying about the Lord's Supper, this is why they're weak and sick, and some have died because of this. They have fallen asleep. Their sinful behavior had physical and earthly consequences for them. 
And more importantly, there are eternal consequences for sin. Jesus speaks later on in this chapter of the the resurrection of those who have done evil. He says that they will come forth from their tombs to a resurrection of judgment, which is a judgment of eternal suffering, the wrath of God. The bottom line is that sin has consequences, and Jesus reminds us of this here. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. As bad as it was to be an invalid for 38 years and even unable to get down into the water when it was stirred, there are things that are worse than that. To avoid such an outcome, he was instructed to stop sinning. Now, it may be that in what he was saying to this man, Jesus is implying that sin actually was the cause of his illness. It's difficult to be sure, but this man is definitely commanded to stop sinning so that nothing worse, something worse than being an invalid for 38 years, so that nothing worse would happen to him. Now we need to let these very forthright words of Jesus serve as a reminder to us when we find ourselves in suffering of any kind or when we have just passed out of some kind of suffering. We need to remember that the wages of sin is death. We need to remember if we continue headlong in sin without repenting and trusting Christ, something worse than whatever we're suffering now will happen to us. As I said, we've got to be careful trying to draw the connections between the sufferings that we suffer and some sin that we've committed. Sometimes there's a clear link between the two that we can perceive, and sometimes there will not be a clear link. Sometimes there might be a link and we just can't tell what it is. But in any case, we can always look at our suffering and say to ourselves, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the good news about this is that if you are a Christian, you have the ability not to sin. It is possible for you not to sin. This is because you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit has come to your dead heart and given you faith in Jesus Christ. You've been cleansed. You've been given new life. As we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Likewise, Romans 5, 6, and 7, Paul tells us that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Likewise, Galatians 5.24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now we understand, of course, that we will not obtain to sinless perfection in this life due to the weakness of the flesh. The flesh still strives against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But if you're in Christ, sin is not your master. If you are in Christ, you do not have to obey your lusts if you're walking by the spirit because the spirit strengthens and gives us power. And this means that If you're a Christian here this morning, you can take this admonition of the Lord Jesus to heart. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And as we do so, we need to keep in mind Paul's words of Romans 8, 12 to 14, where he says, So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to live to the flesh, but uh, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, You will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And so Paul says that as believers, we're 
we're under obligation, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put our sin to death. But how is this to be done? It is to be done by the spirit, by relying upon the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and help us when we find ourselves in temptation, by relying upon the spirit to to work and conform us to the image of Christ. We have this obligation to put sin to death, to live holy life. We can't do it by ourselves, and we don't do it by ourselves. This is done by the Spirit. But what do these words of Jesus mean for you if you're not a follower of Christ? These words are bad news for you, because you actually can't do what Jesus commands you to do. If you're apart from Christ, you can't stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. It is not within your power to stop sinning if you are apart from Jesus Christ. Now, to be completely fair, you might be able to stop some of your particular sins, rearrange perhaps some of your sinful patterns. You might be able to stop committing fornication or stop uh, committing acts of drunkenness. I suppose there have been non-Christians who've been able to, to do those things, but nevertheless, they haven't really stopped sinning. It may be that they've just replaced drunkenness and fornication with pride and self-righteousness and self-reliance. And one pair of sins will send you to hell as quickly as the other. If you don't trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, then this command to stop sinning is too much for you. Because apart from Him and the deliverance that comes through faith in Him, you are a slave to sin. You are held in its bondage, and it has captured your heart and mind, your imagination, your body, and even your soul. As it is, if you're apart from Christ, you are dead in sins and trespasses, according to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1. And there is nothing that you can do to deliver yourself. You're dead in sins, and there's nothing that you can do to release yourself from that bondage, to release yourself from that death. The Lord certainly can release you from it, but you can do nothing about it. And what that means is, is that if your current condition remains unchanged, something worse will happen to you. Whatever, whatever you're suffering now, something worse will happen to you. And ultimately that means hell. And your only hope is for Jesus to do something for you, to liberate you from your sin. And so if that's you this morning, if you're apart from Christ today, and therefore you have no hope of doing what Christ commands when he says stop sinning, then I beg you today to turn to Christ in faith. Look upon him as your only hope. The only hope that you have for getting away from your sin. The only hope that you have of getting away from this bondage that you're currently in, which if things remain unchanged means something will certainly happen to you that is worse than anything that's happened to you before. It's impossible for you to stop sinning on your own. And so look to Christ Come to Him for new life. Come to Him for forgiveness. Come to Him for peace with God because Christ is your only hope. And the good news about Christ is that it is His joy and His delight to rescue sinners. It is His joy and His delight to give new life to those who are dead so that people can stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to them. This is why, this is why Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so look to Christ today. And if you have questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to trust in Jesus. And this brings us back to our passage then as we come to 
our second point, which is honor the Son. And so we find that after Jesus speaks in the temple to this man who was healed, that this man then went to the Jews to tell that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, we don't know what this man's motive was in doing this, but, but he did it. And we know the result. The result is what we find in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things, these things on the Sabbath. Not only had Jesus told this man to pick up his pallet and walk on the Sabbath, but Jesus himself had also done work on the Sabbath, in their view, because he had healed this man. We know from the recorded history in the Gospels that the Pharisees are very hostile to Jesus performing acts of healing on the Sabbath. And as brought down to us in some of the rabbinical writings, the Pharisaical interpretation and application of the Sabbath law was particularly strict. It said that tying and loosening knots were forbidden, that sewing more than one stitch was forbidden. Sorry to those who like to sew in church. <laughs> it's okay. Um, writing more than one letter was forbidden. Sorry to those who like to take notes in church. And uh, one rabbinical ruling stated that if a building collapsed on the Sabbath, you could remove the rubble to determine if the victims were alive or dead. And if they were alive, you could dig them out. Um, but if not, you had to wait until sunset to remove the dead bodies. Traveling was forbidden, which meant that you couldn't walk more than 1,999 paces, which in our terms is about 875 yards. And so that was what the fourth commandment meant, as interpreted by Jewish teachers. And Jesus has several run-ins with them on the issue of the Sabbath, and he makes use in different cases of various defenses against their charges that he was violating the Sabbath, that Uh, That passage we read this morning in Mark chapter 3, he asks whether it is lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill. At another time, he asks if they would pull a son or an ox out of a well if one had fallen in on the Sabbath. But here in John 5, it's interesting to note that Jesus takes a completely different tack as he defends himself from this charge of violating the Sabbath. And this is one that was extremely offensive to the Jews and led to further persecution. Jesus' answer to the charge that he was breaking the Sabbath comes in uh, verse 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, in in saying this, Jesus points out the fact that that God the Father is, is always working. In other words, even on the Sabbath, God the Father is still exercising his work of providence, upholding and sustaining all of creation, if he didn't, everything would collapse entirely. We're told in, in Hebrews chapter 1 about how, uh, how Jesus uh, sustains all things by the word of his power. And this is, this is God's work of, of providence and sustaining creation. And so Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And what, what Jesus is saying here, in essence, is that God the Father works on the Sabbath, You understand that, you know that, and it's okay. And I work on the Sabbath too, and it's okay. Now, as stated, Jesus' argument is that whatever it is that justifies God the Father working on the Sabbath is also the same thing that justifies Him as the Son working on the Sabbath. And the argument only works if Jesus is God. Jesus here calls God His own Father and says that He 
does what the Father does. They both work on the Sabbath, and it's all right. And these Jews are theologically astute, right? They get the import of his words. They get what he's saying, and they hate it. And therefore, we find their response in verse 18. Their response is that they are seeking to kill him all the more. And why is that? He was not only breaking the Sabbath, charge number one, he's also, number two, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's their understanding of what, of what Jesus is getting at by, by saying that uh, my father is working until now and I myself am working. They understand Jesus to be saying that he is equal to God and they're right. They heard and interpreted him correctly. They hated what he was saying. They didn't believe it and they wanted to kill him because of it. But nevertheless, they were correct in their understanding of what he was saying. Now, had they misunderstood what Jesus was saying, he could have easily backpedaled and said, whoa, 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 that's not what I meant. I was trying to, not trying to say that I'm equal with God. I meant something else. He's not my father in the way that you think I'm suggesting. I'm not justifying my Sabbath day actions by equating myself with God the Father. You're greatly mistaken. Had that been the case, Jesus certainly could have said something like that. But that is not at all what Jesus does. If you notice what he does and says in verse 19 and following, this is not a denial of their interpretation of his words, but rather this is a confirmation that they rightly understood that in calling God his own father, he actually was, in fact, making himself equal with God. And so in verse 19, we find the unity of the father and the son, that the son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the father. Uh, it is something that he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. The son sees what the father is doing. Because the father loves the son, he shows him all of these things that he is doing. And they join together, the father and the son, not just in doing the same kinds of things, but in fact they are doing the same things and they are doing them in like manner. And the text goes on. Jesus says that the Father will show to the Son greater works than these, greater works than works like the healing of an invalid. Greater works would be things like giving spiritual life to dead sinners, like passing judgment on all of humanity, like raising the dead, the very kinds of things that follow in this passage here in John 5. And so we read in verses 21 and 22 that just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The Son does the works that the Father does, because they, the Father and the Son, are one. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so, the Son gives life to whom he wishes. And it's not that some receive their life from the Father and others receive their life because they receive it from the Son. Everyone who receives life from God at all receives it from both the Father and the Son. Because, as we find in verse 19, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And this applies to both the giving of spiritual life and the giving of physical life. The Father and the Son are united in, in their actions. And then in verse 22 we read that the Father has entrusted the Son with the prerogative of judgment. Now, inasmuch as he is divine, the Son of God always had the prerogative of judgment. But inasmuch as he is man, that prerogative of judging was granted to him by God the Father. 
And thus it is that our Lord says in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. As God, the authority was always his. But as man, as our mediator, as our king and high priest, that authority was, was granted to him. And this is really quite wonderful when we stop and think about it. This means that the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who will one day judge the living and the dead, is not only God of the same infinite essence as God the Father, but he is also man, like unto us in all things except sin. We find in Ephesians 1.22 that God the Father has put all things in subjection under his feet. That God the Father has given Christ as head over all things to the church. This is Jesus Christ, our head, the one who is true God and true man, the one who was made like unto us in all things. And why so? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest for us in things pertaining to God. This is the one who has died as our sacrifice, as uh, the one who makes propitiation for us by his death on the cross. This is our priest who can sympathize with us, who's tempted in all things as we are, and yet was without sin. And this is the one, this Jesus, to whom all authority has been given. This is the one who's head of the church. This is the one who will judge the living and the dead. And this is the same one who loves us. This is the one who has given himself for us, who governs the world and the church even now, and will come again and raise the dead and judge them on the last day. What a joy to know that the one by whom we are justified, the one by whom we are raised to new life, is the one who will be our judge on that day. In other words, the judgment will not be presided over by some unknown judge, some, someone that we've never known, never met. But rather, the judgment will be presided over by this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this means that if you've already made peace with God the Father through him, you have nothing to fear on that day when you stand before the judge. This is because Christ has already suffered the penalty for the sins of all who trust in him. All who trust in Christ are certainly guilty of all of the sins that we committed, but Christ has paid the price for them. And those sins and the guilt of them are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. No charge can be brought against God's elect. Christ has satisfied for them all. It's great news for all who belong to Christ. That God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. But, on the other hand, this should rightly cause fear for all of those who have not yet been reconciled to Jesus Christ. And friend, if that's you, I beg you as an ambassador of this judge to make peace with him. Recognize that you've sinned against God, that you have not loved God, honored God, or worshipped God as you ought. You've rebelled against the God who created you. You've broken his law in a multitude of ways, and you stand guilty. And if you were to face that judge today, you'd be found guilty of your sins. And what that means is then that the worst of all possible things would happen to you. Eternal judgment. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners from this condemnation, from this coming judgment. And so look to Christ today for forgiveness and for righteousness. Because all judgment has been committed to him. And as Jesus goes on to tell us there in verse 23, this is for his glory and honor. And so, verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, 
Here's the reason, verse 23. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And on top of that, Jesus goes on and he says that if you do not honor the Son, the reality is you don't honor the Father either. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so in light of that, we must all honor the Son. We must all honor the Father, and we cannot do that unless we honor the Son as well. We have to honor Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? We honor Christ by believing in Him and submitting ourselves to Him, which is to say that we honor Christ by trusting Him and obeying Him. He calls God His Father here in verse 17, implying that He is equal with God, and indeed He goes on to speak in such a way as to make it clear that that is what He meant. You cannot honor a created thing in the same way that you honor God without it being idolatry. If, if you honor a created thing in that way, you're worshiping an idol. And Jesus says we have to honor him the same way that we honor the Father. He is truly God. And so to honor the Son then is to take him at his word that he is indeed the Son of God, that he is the one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our confidence, worthy of our obedience. Believing that he is the Son of God who will one day return to judge the world, we must also believe that he is rich in mercy and grace and that he will extend that mercy and grace to all who come to him in faith. And so to honor the Son, then, we must turn to him in true faith and true repentance and seek from here on forward to live for him and to honor him and to worship him. This is what it means to honor the Son. And so may we all take counsel then from that advice that was given to the kings and judges of the earth in Psalm 2, which we sang this morning. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So do homage to the Son. Honor Him as you would the Father and you will be blessed. You will be eternally blessed and happy if you take refuge. In Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for Christ and for his coming into the world. We praise you, Father, for his authority, that he is the one who will judge the earth. We praise you that our judge is also our king and our priest and our prophet, the one who has spoken the word of God to us. Father, we ask for your grace that we would honor the Son, that we would believe him, that we would take him at his word, that we would trust in him, that we would turn from our sins and by your grace walk in obedience to all that he has commanded us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.